2: Well, welcome to Quantum number 159. Uh, thanks again to all of you who have contacted me and given me information and thanks and also criticism and everything else. Wonderful. Quantum is a podcast that looks at news and views and culture from all around the world, from a, a Christian worldview. And just to try and help us think through some of these things, what's going on in the world, trying to understand the times. So let's mention three things, first of all, in terms of world news. We begin with Iran. And this is also tied in with a previous story that we did last week, a little bit about um, nuclear bombs. Now, Israel is now saying that Iran can produce a nuclear warhead within 10 weeks. And that's enormously concerning because Ibrahim Rassi, the, the man who's... A hardline judge known as the Butcher of Tehran, he's been sworn in as the president, and in his first speech, he said the power of the Islamic public in the region brings about security, but that force would only be used against threats made by dominating powers and tyrants. And it is it is, it is an incredibly worrying development, as is what's going on in Afghanistan, where after the withdrawal of American troops, there are reports of almost a thousand people being massacred in Kandahar, there are seven provincial provinces which have been taken over by the Taliban, and there are fears that even Kabul could be gone within a couple of months. The world is a very volatile place. Now, the other issue, I mean, I I think last weekend when I look in my weekend newspaper, everything was doom and gloom. And I knew that when the United Nations Climate Change Report would come out. We would have headlines, uh, as we had here a year and a half ago, of, of you know blazing Greek islands or Californian towns and crying out, the end of the world is nigh. Now, we're going to look. Climate change is a really, really important subject. And, and I hope to be a reliable source on that for you because there's so much misinformation going around all the time. And I want to play this. Now, the minute I play this, some of you who are in the United Kingdom will immediately go, oh no, what's happened? He's playing Farage. Nigel Farage. Now, this is Nigel Farage on GB News. I'm not playing it because it's him. I'm playing it because of what he says. And listen to that. Don't allow your prejudices to make you go, okay, okay, oh, I can't listen to anything that that man says. Why? Have you ever listened to anything he says? How do you know? Uh, Nigel Farage there are things I look at and think No absolutely not And I totally disagree with him Find it abominable But other times I listen to him and go Wait a minute He's got a point there And the one thing you have to credit him with He's, he's a superb politician To me he's up there And again you don't have to like him But with um, Tony Blair Or Alex Salmond And they really were brilliant politicians Now we, we may not like that but that's what they
1: were. So here is Mr Farage. Yes, that's right. In 1989, the United Nations told us we had 10 years left to save the world or it would be beyond control. And this theme was picked up by many famous people, including the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, who in 2008 visited the European Parliament and I was there
3: sitting in the front row and he gave this speech. And in the last few months, we have learnt that the North Polar ice cap is melting so fast that some scientists are predicting that in seven years' time, it will completely disappear in summer. Others think it will take a little longer. But the mere fact that such a development is conceivable at all uh, is, you would have thought, yet another wake-up call as we sleepwalk our way towards the edge of catastrophe. For the lives of billions of people depend on your response and none of us, I'm afraid to say, will ever be forgiven by our children and grandchildren if we falter and fail, thank
1: you. Well done, huge applause standing ovation. They all thought it was marvellous. He also called for the EU to have more power. I simply couldn't believe it. Everybody in the room standing, everybody applauding from across the political spectrum. Quite Astonishing! By 2015, the North Pole will be gone. Ah, there's someone sitting down there, refusing to stand. Yes, that was me. That was me back in 2008. And I absolutely refused to stand and applaud. I couldn't believe that the head of the throne was urging more power for the European Union. But I also thought he was being overly alarmist. Concerned about the environment, well, that, of course, is a good thing and a sensible thing. But the thought that the North Pole would have gone by 2015, and it just hasn't happened. On to today's report from the IPCC. And the prediction is heat waves, flooding, droughts will be more frequent and more intense as the world is set to hit the 1.5 degree global warming limit within the next 20 years. And I'm asking you tonight, is this alarmism responsible? And please let me know your views, gbviews at gbnews.com. UK. Now I find that astonishing and I'll tell you why.
2: Because this UN report is like the 1989 report, the 1972 report, uh, numerous other reports from the UN Climate Committee which have all predicted disaster and have all been wrong. Why should this one be any different? Now it may be that this time, crying wolf, there is a wolf at the door. But we need to examine this a whole lot more carefully. And so, for example, I notice in some newspapers, they're saying oh, there's going to be in the next two decades or a 1.5 degree increase in Earth's temperature. No, that's not what the report says. The report says it's a 1.5 degree since industrialization began. And that's a very, very, that's a couple of hundred years ago. And that's a very, very different thing. This is a much more complex issue than people on either side realise. But be just be really wary of hysteria and be really wary of conspiracy theories. And I think that applies everywhere. Okay, let's, let's go to... Um, actually, this next story brings in uh, both these things, kind of conspiracy theories, hysteria, experts, and so on. Let's go... And listen to this country's national anthem. sunset thou art nigh and beyond the starry sky thou loving father ever near when to heaven we are departing joy and bliss thou be imparting for we feel and understand for we feel and understand that thou dwellest in this land that thou dwellest in this land switzerland of course um and that this ties in with this idea about how do we know things how do we work things out how do we listen So, you know, these experts, remember experts? Well, you've got to keep questioning and keep questioning and keep questioning. The Swiss embassy in China has told Chinese media to take down articles and posts that it says contain fake news. What is this? There is a Swiss biologist who's been quoted in Chinese media, uh, basically defending China, attacking the WHO and saying that... um, uh, you know China's innocent in terms of COVID and, and all the rest of it, and this has been widely cited in Chinese media. This European science expert, and it's been requoted and retweeted and all the rest of it. Except he doesn't exist. This man called Wilson Edwards doesn't exist. It's a fake account, and there are numerous such things. There's no registry of a Swiss citizen with the name Wilson Wilson Edwards and there are no academic articles under his name. I, I've been called out like this. I've cited something that I've so, seen and then you think, "Well, oh, why would people lie about that? But they do. So be careful. And in that regard, let's come to COVID. Because this is so difficult in so many ways, so many different things. And I want to confess something to you. Um, what I want to try and do each week is have one item about COVID that helps explain some things. And, and the one this week is from an astonishing article in the Telegraph. Now I have been working on the assumption for the past 12 months that COVID was spread by aerosol. Remember 18 months ago, the good old days when you, know, you wouldn't shake hands with someone, you had to use elbows, you didn't touch crossing buttons, door handles had to be wiped and so on, and all that's now been forgotten. Because COVID, is, COVID viruses are normally passed on by touch and contact. That's the normal. That's, that's why we went that route. And then we decided that it was aerosol. And I just thought that that was a given. I thought the scientists had decided that. I accepted that. Um, I wasn't bothered about masks because I realized that... Any cloth mask that we have is very ineffective at pre- preventing aerosol coming out. When you've got your mask on, you wear glasses. The reason your glasses steam up is because the, the air that is coming out. And there are very few masks that can prevent COVID particles. However, in a, in a strange kind of way, what's, if this is true, and I think it is, then it's made me more inclined to wear masks because masks help with the droplets and everything else. Because after two, this is a, a, a an article not by some conspiracist, but it's in the Daily Telegraph, and I don't mean the Daily Telegraph here in Australia, I mean the Daily Telegraph in the United Kingdom, and it's an absolutely fascinating article, and I'm putting a link to it. And some of it, let me just say what some of it says: After nearly two years of scientific endeavour, which we've got vaccines and drugs to fight coronavirus, we still don't know or we're not sure how it spreads or how to stop it. We are not sure if the virus is airborne. It's why this mass debate rages on. If it's truly airborne, if it's flowing around in sufficient quantities to give infections. Now, that's not the same as being so close to someone or if they spit on you or you get droplets. That's different. That's different. And there is evidence that it is airborne and that's what I accepted. But as this article points out, There's a lot of scientists unconvinced, including a review in March by the University of Oxford, funded by the WHO, looked at 67 studies looking at the role of airborne transmission. All, they say, are of low quality. Almost none of them found the virus in the air at all. Um, And there is almost no evidence that it is airborne. Professor Tom Jefferson of Oxford University says, the whole field is plagued by poor quality studies, by ideology-driven sweeping statements that cannot be backed up by science. Folks, this is what is happening. I had a woman report me to Twitter this week because I questioned the use of mass, and she said I was being reported for encouraging people to commit suicide. Jefferson goes on to say that COVID is most likely transmitted by droplets and contact, Contact, which is why the decision of the Scottish government to perm- to do away with social distancing, to permit people to be close to one another and yet insist on masks in some settings, like schools and churches, is so absurd and not covered by any of the science whatsoever. Uh, This article cites a study from the University of California which tracked down 421 healthcare workers who'd been exposed to two infected patients were highly at risk because of aerosol generating procedures yet only eight became infected and none were found to be from airborne causes. There's a lot more that we can say about that. But just simply let's also point out this. The rules in the United Kingdom were relaxed on the 19th of July. Masks were no longer compulsory except in Scotland. And what's happened? You would expect if masks were preventing transmission, there would be an increase in transmission, and there hasn't been. Again, Jefferson, the only thing the virus seems to obey is Far's Law, which states epidemics rise and fall in a symmetrical bell curve. I am not convinced the path of the pandemic has much to do with our interventions. Wow. Let's just briefly say something, uh, come on to ethics. Stonewall, astonishing report this week, showing Stonewall has received over £3 million from 327 public sector organisations for their diversity champion scheme. That is where you pay Stonewall to come to you and to tell you how to be diverse and give you guidance on gender-neutral spaces, pronouns, transgender inclusion. You can have events such as a queering children's literature event, At the Goldsmith University of London, the unconscious bias train the trainer workshop costing 1620 quid at the Southwest London and St. George Mental NHL's chess. Um, Being a better ally to LGB people of colour webinar cost you 48 pounds to go to that. It's a scam. And then this, in, in the world world. I love this. Listen to this. Curry
4: food blogger uh, says using the word curry as a catch-all term for Indian cuisine is a throwback to Britain's colonial past should be cancelled. Oh. California-based Chaheti Bansal said we need to unlearn the word because it's an umbrella term used by white people who can't be bothered to remember the names of individual dishes. She went on to tell NBC the word curry shouldn't be used by people who don't understand what it is. Means, I mean, you love a curry. I love a curry.
3: Well, uh, yeah, but we can't say it ever again.
4: No, um, but yeah. curry is a general. It is a general word for a food, a, t- a type of food. What is it about people in California?
3: I mean, uh, how, it's a curry. E- Indians call them curries. They are curry houses.
4: Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, ridiculous, ridiculous, really. What's this woman's name? Um, I, I, yeah. Well, I'll have a look. Uh, yeah, you know, you know her name. Yeah. I think we'll get onto the sport. Mike, you like a curry. Good <laughs> morning, a Mike. I like prawn booner,
3: me. Yeah.
2: You, you like
4: a prawn booner? Oh, delicious.
2: You can't say curry in California because it's racist. I've got to go up to my... There's so many Indian curry houses in our area around here in Sydney. I've got to go tell them, hey, you guys, you're being racist against um, Indians. You know, they're going to kill themselves at the Rangoon restaurant with all the British Empire stuff. <gasps> Dear me. Right, time for a bit of music. Layla, Derek and the Dominoes, Eric Clapton. Um, I came across an amazing story behind that song, and this is true. There's a man called Ian Dallas, actor, playwright, religious leader. Born in Ayr, south of Glasgow, 1930, to a landed Highland family, educated at Ayr Academy. Led a pretty wild life. Um, He... Managed to meet up with people like Eric Clapton, Vivian Lee, Albert Finney, Federico Fellini. Um, in the 1960s, he traveled North America and the Mediterranean, stayed in Fez, converted to Islam, became Abdul Qader, a Sufi. And in London, he was still known as Ian, and yet he followed the teachings of Sufism. He gave Eric Clapton a copy of a 12th-century poem written by Nizam Ganjavi and based on an ancient Arab tale, the story of Layla and Majnun, in which Layla's father forbids her marriage to Majnun. Majnun is Arabic for crazy, and he goes mad. Make the best of the situation before I finally go insane. That's the lyrics of Layla. Yeah. So this Scotsman who became a Muslim, um. Influences an Englishman to write one of the great songs By the way, it's quite sad that um, Dallas He became very involved in Islam's fights. He was an acute anti-Semite He accused Pope Benedict of blasphemy and was really having a go at his German heritage Um, He called the Pope a Nazi And he then said this, our Muslim kingdom is of course the great victim of a capitalism which knows, unlike ourselves, alas, that Islam is is its unique historical enemy. The two earlier witnesses against it, Judaism and Christianity, have surrendered to its protocols. What a story, and what a sad one. Another sad story is, let's go to politics, the fall of Andrew Cuomo. The governor of New York, a year ago, all being praised all over the place for handling the pandemic, being seen as a future rising star. Well, he's been around for a long time. He's gone. He's resigned. After a report came out which found, accused him of sexual harassment, I think against at least eight people. In fact, more than that, a dozen, nearly a dozen women. It's a 165-page report, and he's gone. And let's do one more political thing. Here's Andrew Doyle, um,
4: Titania, uh, known on Scotland. This is incredible. There is something very strange happening in Scotland, and I don't know why. Uh, I've never been able to answer this, but there seems to be a particular form of authoritarianism that takes root north of Hadrian's Wall, and I don't know where it comes from. If you take the police in Scotland, they are some of the most zealous when it comes to uh, looking at people's tweets. The police, in fact, in Scotland have a database of hundreds of jokes that have been told online, so they're keeping an eye on the people who told those jokes. They don't tell the people that they've recorded their names, but they're keeping an eye. And this was uh, a story that was broken last year, and that's... uh, completely true um the non-crime hate incidents things that the hate crime bill the hate crime bill is an astonishing piece of work this was pushed through by Hamza yusuf the justice secretary now the original draft of that by the way could have seen you arrested even if you hadn't intended to stir up hatred it happened inadvertently uh and they did change that off the back of uh fierce criticism but as it currently stands the bill is incredibly draconian i mean like you say in the privacy of your own home they can they can arrest you for things you say there is a particular form of authoritarianism
2: north of hadrian's wall yeah i think that's true i I do think that's true we'll maybe say more about that another time but it is quite disturbing and here's a bizarre thing you know how in covid politicians keep saying we're following the science we're being guided by the science here's an example of how that doesn't work the premier of queensland anastasia Palaszczuk. her office conducted tax funder taxpayer-funded polling into the government's COVID-19 strategy across a regional Labour-held marginal seat. This is in the area of Livingstonshire. again the Scottish influence in Labour's seat of Keppel. Now, the point about that is this. She's looking to see, let's do polling to see how this plays with the public. Think about that. This is not being led by the science. It really is quite extraordinary. Okay, some of you will recognize this.
5: Neighbours, everybody needs good neighbors With a little understanding You can find the perfect place
2: uh, I, I have a confession to make. I used to watch the 20-minute neighbors. I think I probably watched it for about five years. I'd come in when we were in Brora and a little bit in Dundee. I just—it was just mindless wallpaper TV. Um, of course, I've given up. I mean, I wouldn't. My parents—I'm glad my mother doesn't listen to this podcast, because, but because—but I, I, when they came to Australia, they actually went to the neighbors' set. But Neighbours is just a great example of how soap opera is now being used to um, put forward the values of the woke elites. So currently in Neighbours, I don't watch it, but I believe this is true, one character, Mackenzie, has transitioned from male to female. So is the actor, by the way, which just goes to show the fantasy aspect of that for me. Three characters are gay, one bisexual. Yeah, that's your normal street here in Australia. No, it's not. All right. Not everything is bad on TV, though. I'm delighted to say that the Reverend Dr. William Philip, senior minister of the Tron
0: Church in Glasgow, joins me now. Good evening, Reverend. Good evening. First of all, uh, we've seen a gradual lifting of Covid restrictions
2: in recent weeks. How much of a tonic has that been to you, your colleagues and your parishioners?
0: I think it's it's certainly been uh, welcomed. Uh, We've had a very long 18 months, haven't we, Uh, in the churches, just as in everywhere else. People are weary, and um, I think many people have been uh, feeling for a long time it's way past the time we should be getting back much more towards normal lives. So I, I think, yes, it's been encouraging, but it's been a long time in coming. Of course, Reverend, you are an admired think, um, local... cleric. Um, that has been one of the very great mistakes uh, that governments have made over this last uh, 18 months. I think the very time when um, you are facing as a nation a great crisis
6: is is
0: the very time that the church is needed, most of all. Um, that's what's always happened in the past, wartime in times of great crisis. Um, the governments today have recognized that uh, the church has got a very important place in the life of society, a, a leadership position. It's not the same as the government, uh, but it is alongside the government and that spiritual leadership in a time of crisis um, is is something that's very, very important. Spiritual leadership, moral leadership. Um, we haven't had that from the from the government. We can't have that from from secular governments. Um, and so at a time when many people were fearful, um, people were suffering. Um, people were facing death. Um, that avenue of support, of comfort, uh, and of courage was cut off, uh, cut off from them. And I think that's been a very great shame. I think it has um, been to the detriment of the national response uh, to, to to this pandemic and its aftermath. And so I think it's a very great shame. I, I think uh, governments uh, have been to blame in that, but I, I think perhaps. Uh, Churches, church leaders also uh, must bear some of the blame. Perhaps we um, just accepted far too quickly, too easily, that we were a non-essential service. Mm. Um, And uh, I think that betrays a lack of confidence in the church. Nobody would say that the fire brigade's a non-essential service. Nobody would say that hospitals are non-essential services. God, if we in the church don't believe that the matters we deal with are even more important than bodily health and life, then who on earth else is going to believe that? And of course, um, a church, a church. A church a now that's
2: Willie Philip, awesome minister word. of the Tron Church, and there's several things astonishing about that. Listen to the whole thing. You don't have to agree with his views on COVID or lockdown or everything else, um, vaccine passports and so on. But there's the, in the 20-minute interview, what stands out is this. First of all, that it was 20 minutes. He wouldn't have got that on the BBC or ITV. Secondly, that he wasn't ridicule. Thirdly, that Willie graciously and clearly was able to bring in the gospel as to why he was doing all of this. I thought it was a tour de force and I was really encouraged by it. Again, go and have a look at it. And then we're going to come back to Australia. There's a few Australian things here this week. Um, it was the census, and here is Tim Minchin telling us what to do about it.
6: I just am uh, trying to help promote a campaign that's been put together by uh, Humanists Australia and the Rationalist Society and a few other groups um, to encourage people to tick no religion in the, uh, under the question about religiosity, if indeed you are not religious, um, because the way the question is phrased has been phrased in the past and, and as, as far as I know is still phrased, it inclines people to uh, tick a, you know, choose a religion kind of based on their cultural affinity or on their parents' faith or their grandparents um, when actually data with, with, with less, um, a less misleading question shows that 70%, more than 70% of Australians don't really feel that religion plays a major part in their life at all. Uh, and the number of people that actually go to church or, or the mosque or synagogue is down 15% or something. Um, and it's actually, it, it matters because the whole point of a census is governments use this data to, to uh, make funding decisions and policy decisions. And we should give the government as accurate a, as possible a representation of our nation's religiosity. So um, if you're not particularly religious uh, yourself tick no religion on the census and uh, encourage your friends to do the same so that uh, we don't end up in a situation where our currently very religious uh, government uh, gets to use the census to justify um, the religious privilege in their policy and funding decisions.
2: You see what's happening there. They're saying, Make sure you vote for the no religion thing they actually spent I think they spent about fifty thousand dollars The they is the fundamentalist atheist. why are they doing that? why are they doing that because they are so desperate to just have this narrative of the church is in decline and you know we we want to make everything exactly fitting in with the secular humanist worldview they're they're, they're really intolerant people well I, I got good news for them, bad news for them perhaps, but good news for the rest of us. The good news will continue to flourish and to grow. You can keep it down, you can't squash it. It's not about ticking a form on a census. It's about people coming to know Jesus and their lives being transformed and changed. And if you'd watched the Olympics, you would have seen, at least here in Australia, just how many stood up and said, I want to thank Jesus. Time is going, two things. My podcast number
3: six is this one. Good evening. Nightclubs have never been the safest places. The dangers of drink, drugs and deafness were always there. And now they've reopened, add Covid. For some experts, it's an epidemiological nightmare. Lots of partially or non-vaccinated young people packed together in a sweltering concatenation of singing, shouting and snogging. There's a balance to be struck between freedom and responsibility, between collective safety and individual enjoyment. A wider philosophical question, too, about the moral value of revelry. Is pleasure of this kind a moral good, a display of human connections, a celebration of life itself, as some philosophers have said? Or is it mere hedonism, indulgence, and essentially selfish abandonment of self-control? Is stoical self-restraint the moral goal? Uh, Party-pooping, or maybe not, Moral Maze tonight. The panel: Melanie Phillips, social commentator at the Times, the libertarian communist. I bet their parties are something to behold. Ash Sarkar from the Novara <laughs> Media Group, the historian Tim Stanley, and the priest and polemicist uh, Giles Fraser. Ash, that was a low blow, I know. Uh, uh, but I think that is the Moral Maze. I'm not going to say anything
2: more about it on the BBC. Absolutely superb program. Pull your hair out sometimes, but just wonderfully stimulating and helpful. now I'm going to go and I'm going to leave you with this beautiful song from James Taylor, Fire and Rain
5: Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone Suzanne the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to
2: as usual, send me in comments, links, stories you want me to, to look at. Feel free if you want to support the Podbean fundraiser. I'm so thankful to those of you who do because it allows us to do this reasonably. Um, let me know of any ideas and I pray that God would bless you. But let me leave you with this beautiful song. Won't you look down on me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. You've just got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand. And I won't make it any other way. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought I'd see you again. See you next week.
5: Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You gotta help me make a stand. You just got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend One more time again
6: Thought I'd see you
5: One more time again There's just a few things Coming my way this time around